Hello, everyone, and welcome to Making the Scene, where each episode, my guest and I talk about one sequence from a film and discuss it from any and every angle we can find. Why does it work? How does it work? Great film is alchemy, the result of an interaction between writing, performance, light, sound, sets, and editing. On Making the Scene, we try to understand that alchemy through the lens of a single scene, to understand the director's approach to their film by examining how and why they built this one specific moment. The guests are my choice, but the scenes are theirs. Today, that guest is podcaster and Delhi Counter of Justice co-editor Arlo Wiley, our first returning guest from season one of Making the Scene. Very excited to have him joining us again. How are you doing today, Arlo? I am doing very well. Thank you, Eric. I, I am extremely excited to be back. I've been uh, really looking forward to this. It's really cool to have you back. I, it's interesting. You know, we'll, we'll get to what you've chosen, but you know, last year was a, a year. Uh, last year it was many years ago, but last season was a season of many. Um, I would say conventional choices of films, great films, really great scenes, but they were the kinds of movies that um, you might expect to find on a podcast. And um, I, I'm very excited because we're going off in a different direction, but it was, it's been interesting reflecting. I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about our last episode, um, which was uh, the, the basement scene in Inglorious Bastards and how much that was one of my favorite yes. conversations and a heck of a scene to really break down. And I, I whenever I return to that movie, I think a lot about how much time we spent into that, and it's one of my favorite scenes. So I, I hope you had enjoyed recording that, but that was one of my favorites of of the show. Absolutely, and, and I promise that I'm not just saying this because I'm back on the show, but that that is – I've recorded many, many podcasts uh, in my life, and that is one of my favorites. I think about it fairly often. We really uh, – we dove deep in dissecting that scene. Um, and of course, I chose like a half hour long <laughs> scene, <laughs> which is maybe uh, cheating a little bit. Uh, we'll we'll, uh, we'll get into the scene that I chose tonight, but it's only a third as long. So, you know, you, you still got beat out by Greg Sedashini's, um epically long Butch, uh, Butch, Butch, sorry, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid scene, which is barely a scene. And I got totally trolled on my first episode with that. So it's like the def- second half of the movie. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we, we so we do. We have a, a, a very different scene actually, and and we you've kind of taken um, us off the beaten path, which was my rec- my request actually, and I, I really appreciate you humoring me asking to go in some new directions this year. So tell me about um, the film you've chosen and the scene you've chosen, and and kind of put it into context for me. So you had asked me for you know or i don't know if you would ask me specifically but you were tweeting out about you know what your goals were for this season of making the scene and you wanted things that were a little uh less conventional a little weirder and so i started thinking you know trying to come up with something a little more obscure and i settled on this and i I think i told you at the time like this isn't a weird movie but it is definitely one that uh, very few people I feel are, are aware of this. You couldn't really choose a more different film and a more different scene than uh, when you and I discussed Inglorious Bastards. This is the, the, the polar opposite. 
So the film that I have chosen tonight is from uh, either 1983 or 1984, depending on your source. Uh, Bless Their Little Hearts, uh, directed by Billy Woodbury, uh, written and shot by uh, Charles Burnett. Uh, It is a movie that I've only, in watching it again in preparation for this podcast, uh, I realized it was only the second time I'd seen it, which kind of blew my mind because when I when I saw it uh, for the first time about two years ago, it, it immediately like, burned itself into my brain, and I, I there were moments of this movie that I remembered so vividly. I was sure I had to have seen it more than once. Um, this is uh, we're going to provide a little more uh, context about the movement this movie came from, but there was a movement among UCLA uh, film students among. Uh, black indigenous and people of color uh ucla film students in particular uh ranging from about the late 60s through the the mid to late 80s uh that is now known as the la rebellion uh it sort of grew out of the watts riots uh toward the end of the 60s i believe that took place in 1969 and ucla made a very conscious effort to get in more uh so-called minority students and so uh, Charles Burnett is uh, one of the leading figures in that movement. Uh, perhaps the most famous film from the L.A. Rebellion is called Killer of Sheep. And I actually haven't seen it because it's it's difficult. I actually I didn't check uh, just tonight to see if it's streaming anywhere now. But at least as of a couple years ago, it wasn't streaming anywhere. And despite being shot in the late 70s, it wasn't given a release until 2007. Um, when it was met with with wide acclaim. But this film, uh, Charles Burnett wrote about a 70-page script slash outline for it, and he gave it to a a younger filmmaker named Billy Woodbury. uh, uh, Burnett wrote it, shot it, cast the actors, but he gave it to Woodbury to be the, the main creative voice behind it. And to date, it's the only... Uh, narrative feature directed by Woodbury. Um, the only other uh, uh, long-form film that he's done is a, docu- a great documentary called And When I... Uh, let me get the exact title. I always screw it up. Uh, and When I Die, I'll Stay Dead. Or no, I Won't Stay Dead. <laughs> uh, and, and When I Die, I Won't Stay Dead, which is about the uh, unheralded black beat poet Bob Kaufman. Um So I want to make very clear before we get into this discussion, uh, for those of you uh, who are not familiar with me or who can't tell from uh, me talking right now, I am very white. So I just want to I want to provide that piece of context. uh, And and I want to say that I'm, I'm not an expert on the L.A. rebellion by any means, but I am very interested in the films from that movement and very I feel very passionately about this one in particular. And because I, you know, anyone that I mention it to has I, very rarely have I come across someone over the last two years who who has actually heard of it. Um, and so I, I love this movie. It, it means a lot to me. Um, and that's why I chose it. Thank you uh, for choosing this, Arlo. And, and yeah, we, we are um, proper disclaimer of, of, of um, probably our limits of being able to 
really put the LA rebellion and this film in cultural context being, um, two um, extremely suburban white people. Um, but I did, uh, I did ask, you know, one of the things I asked for with this season was to, we had a lot of, um, white guy directors the first year, um, which is, you know, I mean, there's I mean, a lot I of ch- white, I, ch- I chose, I chose fucking Tarantino. <laughs> So, I mean, you can't get wider than that. It's you know, it's difficult in film because film has been so exclusionary throughout most of its history that a lot of the great movies are white men, not because white men are better at making movies, but because they were the ones given budgets to make movies. And so it takes some intentionality to break off of that um, when you're talking about movies because the culturally accepted movies are a lot of times the movies that were given budgets, wide releases, publicity, and those go to, you know, a specific group of people and so i really wanted to set that intentionality this time and i i'm really excited about this because the la rebellion isn't just um a new movement to me actually arlo you you actually introduced this to me by doing this i actually feel very um very bad about not knowing this existed but as i dug into it what's interesting is unlike basically every other movie we'll probably ever talk about on this podcast um, bless your little, bless their little hearts is a master's thesis. It's like a dissertation film, and yeah. the vast majority of the LA Rebellion movies are movies made as parts of thesis or dissertations. There's an awful lot of them. Uh, Killer Sheep is another one, and that's why they haven't had much release because they were not. Not only were they made outside of the studio system, but they were made before independent film existed in in a really you know um, commercial kind of way. Because independent cinema did get commercial about ten years later, but they're they're. I mean, I, I can't think of a movement like this, even just in terms of how these movies were made and the background of them. And so they were almost unfindable for a really long time. I mean, I looked at Letterboxd just about this movie. And, you know, to give you some context, Halloween 2, which is the last movie I saw before this, Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, has something like 35,000 ratings. Um uh, Bless Their Little Hearts has like 1,200. I have more Twitter, Twitter followers than this movie has letterbox reviews. If you want a sense of how <laughs> how difficult it can be to find these movies or even know they, you should be hunting them down. And this is on Criterion Channel now, so you actually can see them. But like that's a – that is – intensely obscure by like serious film standards even and and it's not fair or appropriate and anyways i say that because i'm really excited to be talking about this um because these this this is deserves um conversation and anyways thank you for choosing this movie i that's really my very long preamble to say thank you for choosing this and for introducing this day yeah absolutely you know i i feel like the popular uh, mainstream understanding of black film kind of uh, begins with Spike Lee. You know, I, I would say if you if you ask the average, if you assuming the average person can name a film director, if you ask them to to name a black filmmaker, you, you're going to get Spike Lee. Uh, you're going to get Barry Jenkins, who of course is, is currently making some uh, incredible films, um, but there's not a lot of understanding of the history of black film. And so uh, the, the Criterion Channel was actually my gateway to uh, this film and other films in the L.A. Rebellion um, two years ago during the surge of Black Lives Matter protests. They had a whole spotlighted uh, collection that was 
I, I believe was free to everyone, not limited to subscribers at the time. And uh, this was part of it. A few other films by Charles Burnett uh, were a part of it. Um, all of them very well worth checking out. Um, but yeah, I, I certainly did not have a great understanding. I still don't have a great understanding of the history of black film. Um, and I think it's important uh, to, to cut myself off because I feel like I was going down one path and now I have a new, there's a new, there's a new branch that I want to go down. Um, I think that if you watch a movie like bless their little hearts, which is from 1983, there are certain things about it. Uh, at least from my, uh, white young white male perspective that are kind of shocking to see, uh, in a movie that came out, 40 years ago you have a scene early on of two black men uh comparing the the relative lightness of of each other's skin um you have a very uh uh on dais the the wife in the film played by casey moore uh, there's a very deft understanding of her place not only in her own home but in the in the social uh, strata of her neighborhood um, and that's not a perspective that you get very much of um, even these days and so it's just really it's really enlightening in the sense that I, I feel like we so often have a blinkered understanding of the past that you know up until the mid 60s like I feel like in the cultural consciousness people just kind of think it was like leave it to beaver um and, you know, that's such a limited, narrow understanding informed by, again, the types of films and media that get uh, ex uh, budget, that get promotion, that, that get released. Um, and so it's just really uh, instructive to watch a film like Bless Their Little Hearts and understand that things have always been more complex and always richer than our common understanding of it. It, you're 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 so on with that and and there's there's something interesting about um i read a, a quote from billy woodbury about um about this movie um and it, i think it connects to exactly what you're saying which is that you know at the time that the la rebellion was going on the the kind of first um wave of black popular cinema was happening which gets called black exploitation a lot now you know um superfly and shaft and movies like that were happening in the 70s um and they billy woodbury specifically talked about how those movies weren't speaking to him they and you know he looks back and he goes well they were popular so you know obviously they were doing something but they really weren't speaking to what he understood as his life and his in the life that he grew up in and and his you know, his overall understanding of the world and what the LA Rebellion films, and, you know, I, I've only seen this one, but I was reading about a lot of other ones, digs into what life actually was to the filmmakers. And, you know, nothing about any of the black exploitation was what life was like to any of those filmmakers. Like it's like them or not, like those were not portrayals of actual culture or life or society any more than Dirty Harry is a portrayal of actual life or society, their action movies or whatever. And whereas, and we weren't getting these. And I, what I really am fascinated about by this movement and this movie is um, it's, 
economically and class conscious in a way that a lot of cinema cinema dips in and out of. You know, in the 70s, we had a lot of very, you know, class-interested cinema. And then the 80s hit, which is when this came out, and we hit the Reagan era, and lots of movies are things like Wall Street. You know, we stop caring about that. We were like, it becomes affluence porn in a lot of ways. Um, and while the, and this is speaking to an, you know, a, 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 a reality of life of not being able to find work, a like post um, factory, post union kind of world um, on top of it being um, not focused on white people, which is most other movies of that time. And so I'm, I'm really interested in talking about this. And as we get into the actual scene, we're talking about um, because everything about this is rooted in the, the difficulty of daily life when you are in a part of society that has been mostly cut off from success and the ability to move anywhere. Um, there's, there's a lot about, um, about the, you know, this takes place in Watts, I think, actually, I think this actually takes place in Watts. And so it is very rooted in, in, um, the black experience at that time, but it's also, I found interesting connections via the, having come from a, a mill town of what life was like after all economic opportunities had been taken away and people trying to scrape for work and their entire societal message of this is what being a man is. This is what being a, you know, a, a producer for your family means and there being no avenues for that anymore. And what does that do to your life? What does that do to your self-worth? What does that do to your family? What does that do to everyone around you? What if your entire community is living that? And so I found a lot of of um, kinship on that axis on this movie because that was a trauma for Amer- you know for a lot of working people. We had just come out of a world where unions and work and increasing wages were a thing, and then it was all gone. Everything was ripped away, yeah. and there was nothing. And it was bare. And just as civil rights was building up an avenue, it all collapsed for everyone. Um, and of course. That, anyway, so that's, that's like a big part of what this, where the seeding of this film is, and so um, it's interesting. I struggle with this movie a little bit for reasons we'll get into, which have nothing to do with the content and everything to do with the style. Um, but I, I've, the more I sat with it, and as I'm talking about it, I'm finding like a like a kinship and affection for this that I'm really excited to dig into. So. Um, let's talk about the scene itself. You you chose a specific scene. It is a a scene that has been cited as you know, kind of maybe like the seminal moment of this movie in a lot of ways. What what is the scene and why this scene? Sure. So um, any uh, review or essay that you can find about this movie seems to single out this scene in particular. Um, it's a scene that occurs about fifty four minutes into the movie. It's uh, it's a 10 minute take. It's all one take, one shot. Um, throughout the film, uh, Nate, uh, or, or I'm sorry, Charles, played by Nate Hardman, uh, and his wife, uh, Andeas, uh, played before, uh, or played as I mentioned before by Casey Moore, they have each been, the, the pressure has been building in their relationship. At the start of the film, it's certainly not an ideal relationship as you mentioned um charlie is you know this is a post industrial boom society and so he's struggling to find work um 
that puts Andeas in the unusual at the time position of being the breadwinner for the family. And so it's putting a lot of strain on their marriage. And throughout the film, uh, leading up to this point, we can see uh, certain fissures starting to open up. And this is the scene where it all comes to a head. Um, it's a very, in one way, it's a very simple scene. It's the two actors, Nate Hardman and Casey Moore, um, talking to each other. And this is a, a scene that was in the script, but there was no dialogue for this scene in the script. So this was largely improvised by the two actors. And everything comes out. All of their grievances, um, petty and otherwise, um, all of their, everything that either of them has been feeling throughout the whole film comes out in that scene. And it's, you know, I think often uh, in, say, like uh, big mainstream Oscar bait movies, I'm thinking uh, particularly of a movie that I, I know um, was pretty well liked when it came out, but I, I was never able to get into um, Revolutionary Road with uh, Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. And I remember there's a big scene in that movie where the, the couple like it, it, it's it's almost kind of similar, like they just, you know, unleash everything. And I remember at the time just thinking it was so phony, like it didn't it felt very manufactured. It didn't feel organic. It was very it felt very false and uh, soap operatic. Um, this scene, by contrast, is very real and very raw. Um, so you kind of alluded to this, Eric, the, the film style, um, takes a lot of influence from, uh, Italian neorealism. It's very documentary like in the way it follows these characters and their day to day, uh, goings on. And this is the closest the movie gets to being showy, which which it's still not, but it's, 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 it's the closest the movie has to a centerpiece. And it kind of, um, the, their argument waxes and wanes in a manner that is very realistic. You know, at times they're just full of, of this, this righteous anger. And at other times they're, they're one of them is pleading with the other to, to, to see their perspective, to feel how they're feeling. And it's these two people, uh, ultimately, just begging the other to consider their perspective and it's just it's just it's a, a really incredible especially when you know that it, it's it's largely improv um it, it's in, incredible work from from hardman and more it, it's a it's a scene that actually will probably challenge your conception of what a oneer is and can be yes. um you know the wonders are kind of a big a big showpiece now in films you know people love to have those single shots often steady cam kind of like very choreographed sequences where the camera's um play is almost and like the audacity of pulling it off is almost as important as anything else this is a wonder where the camera is largely on one, like it's in one place. It, I think it's probably handheld, but it's on one side of the room, um, and it mostly pans 
between two areas and occasionally uh, either zooms or pushes in um, to an actor to get closer to one or getting both of them in. But it is it is not attempting to call attention to itself as a oneer. It is absolutely living in the moment of an argument and the intent of the scene is very much not letting you out of the tension of the moment it isn't trying to be a oneer. it is just trying to keep you from escaping from the pain of the moment and i think anyone who's interested in like what oneers can be should watch this for that reason because the simplicity of it is extremely powerful yeah so I'm, I'm trying to think, when did Warners become like cinematic brinkmanship? Like, I, I know that, um, you know, they, they've been a gimmick ever since uh, Hitchcock's Rope in 1948, which, you know, uh, pushed the limitations of what film cameras could do at the time and is presented all as one take. Um, you know, you've got Orson Welles, the start of Touch of Evil. But I, I, if I'm if I'm pressed to think like when it became sort of a a trick or a showpiece, I think it goes back to uh, the cabana scene in uh, Goodfellas. Like I feel like that is the source of our conception today of what a oneer is. And I want to be very clear: I love oneers. I know that there are people who roll their eyes at them, who, you know, think it's just, you know, like the the the, the self-aggrandizing technique. And I mean, you're not necessarily wrong, but there can be something so thrilling and exciting about just, you know, I'll use the word that you used, the, the sheer audacity of, of what someone's able to accomplish with a camera. I love them. This the the oneer the so-called oneer in bless their little hearts uh yeah it's it's completely different it, it is a oneer not out of um you know a sense of showmanship or one-upsmanship it's a oneer to i mean i mean i think you you nailed it to it it wants to pin you in this one moment in this one marriage it's um a very claustrophobic scene because like you said it the camera really only focuses on one of them at a time panning back and forth it's very rare that they both share the same frame and when they do it the, the scene threatens to erupt into violence there's there's in particular a moment where it feels like um charles might break and do do something very bad and he doesn't but it just it it adds to the just the, the the mounting tension of the scene it's and and we should probably talk brief, quickly about um the technical specifications of this movie because i think it might if you haven't seen it it might be hard to note which is that this is in black and white academy ratio probably 16 millimeter i'm guessing based on the i think so the provenance yeah. but i'm i can't i'm not sure if it's black and white 35 millimeter or 16 but it's um you know, this is a this is not a a wide film. You know, it's not it's not it, and as a result, that that increases that sense of being really in the the scene that you're in. And we are in a a very small kitchen for this entire scene with a lot of clutter and a very lived in um, thing. But as as a result, you have um, again, it goes back to like the simplicity technically of the movie but that simplicity technically i think 
really masks how thoughtful what they're doing in the scene is. And and when you put it in context of the film, they never do anything really like the scene the rest of the movie. This is not the style of the movie. The movie isn't lots of long, long takes. This is, I think, the only really long, long, long take of the movie without yeah. any cuts. Yeah. I, I would say that the rest of the movie is a little impressionistic in the way that it's just like these brief little moments in their lives that build to something larger. Um, and, and yeah, th- this is, um, by the way, I, it is, I looked it up. It was uh, shot on 35. Okay. Okay. Um, so, so black and white 35 millimeter. Um, if it gives you an idea of the technical limitations of what they were working with, the sound is mono, which I was not consciously aware of while watching, but that's, you know, it, it, this is a very, um, low tech movie. Uh, even for the time. Um, but yeah, this scene is unique to the movie. Um, it's the only scene, um, not only is it the only scene that's this kind of long, sustained take, it's also the only real emotional eruption of the movie. The rest of the movie, both before and after, the characters are, are largely playing things so close to the vest, so trying not to crack in front of the people that they they care about and are supposed to be able to care for um and in fact one thing i really love about this movie is that you know this is not the end of their marriage we see just a scene or two later she is very comforting to him because that's what marriages are like right Or, or not just marriages but relationships in general you have these really big intense uh sometimes horrible moments but often those aren't the end point, you know, you, you, you go back into a rhythm and you go back into giving different things to one another. Um, and that's, um, I think that's a really lovely, uh, thing about this movie is that it's not, no one in this movie and no relationship in this movie is just one thing. Um, I, I really, I really like the way you frame that. And I think that, um, that, the fact that this scene is not just a, a narrative and emotional, I don't want to say aberration because it's intentional, you know, but the fact that this is the one really big dramatic moment in a scene that is in a movie that is not reaching for drama in any way. And that technically they make a very different choice during it to highlight that is... Um, I mean, going back to the fact that wonders are often a showpiece, I think one of the negatives of that, and I and I'm with you in that I enjoy a good a good audacious wonder, but there are a lot of times there to service themselves as a bit of camera work. In this, it is a stylistic technique that is very intentionally tied to the emotional impact that they want. The whole, everything about the scene is different than the rest of the movie, down to the camera choices, and that's. An intentionality that you can miss a lot in cinema where it's easy to do things like a one like in, on a digital camera that's tiny. You don't need a giant steady cam rig. You don't need a lot of the stuff. You can pull off a wild camera thing. You have digital edits to make it look like a one You have all these things that you can make those things work. Um, in this, you know, there's a thoughtfulness of, well, we're going to burn a whole reel of film. And actually, I should call that out too, which is 10 minutes is roughly – a reel of film so they are burning a full reel of film you can't go longer than a reel of film in the film areas of filming you can shoot for three hours now 
Um, this is a whole expensive reel of film. And if you lose it, you can't edit it around it. That's it. You've, yeah. you've lost yeah. it. And so like, there's a real thoughtfulness that goes into choosing to do it this way. Yeah. And they, uh, they shot three takes. This is the second one. The first, it's, it's so interesting. So going into the scene, uh, Casey Moore had requested that there be a table in the kitchen to provide some physical distance between them. Woodbury disagreed. He decided not to have a table. Um, I, I think both because of physical limitations, but also because there can't be anything between those two characters in this scene. There, there's so much between them in the rest of the movie. There can't be anything in between them uh, in this scene. And the, the first scene uh, the the um, I, I described in the the finished film, there is a sense that you know things could become physical. I guess in the first take, uh, Nate Hardman actually did grab her, and Woodbury called cut and said, "No, you can't do that. Like this is not this is not what the scene is supposed to be." So then they did the second take, which is what we have here, and then they decided, you know, well, maybe we're going to need coverage for this. You know, I, you know, maybe they, they, they were going to throw in some cuts. Um, so they decided to do a third take, and the way Woodbury describes it, uh, there, there's a great interview with uh, a filmmaker magazine that he did about, uh, I think, in 2013. Um, and he talks in detail about this scene, and he says that the, the third take was, in his words, laughable. Because what you see in the finished film, that's like they they were giving everything they had. And so when they got to the third take, there was nothing left in the tank. They they did the scene, but it wasn't believable. It didn't have the the life that the second take did. And so um, I'm really glad, actually, that you mentioned that that 10 minutes is roughly a reel of film that really puts into perspective the, the risk they were taking here. So they burned at least two two whole reels of film shooting this one scene um and yeah that that's a huge that's a huge sacrifice a huge expense um and yeah it, it's it's crazy to think that, that they nailed it on the second take and and, and that that because of the nature of how this was shot, which I'm going to talk, want to talk a little more about the improvisational, mm -hmm. improvisational nature of this in a second, because that's right on. But given that, it's interesting because that was the moment they had everything. They, they, the first take was the figuring out what the parameters of the scene were, what was the limitations, what, what, what are the boundaries we can work in. Second scene, they nailed it. And after that, well, you've already given – you don't have a script to go off of. You're not repeating lines you're tired, you're exhausted. Um, and, yeah. and so, yeah, that, that, um, that it's, you're not gonna be able to go back to that again. And, and so the, the improvisational nature specifically is interesting because in that interview, and by the way, I will be linking that, um, that in the show notes because it's a great interview. Um, he called out that Charles Burnett had worked with Casey Moore before and that they had done a scene that, um, she had actually struggled to bring the power to as written. And so he gave her latitude in that, to really bring herself to that moment and it worked and i think that's probably why they did it this way because charles was a was on this movie in fact he is both the cinematographer cameraman um and writer of this movie um they built it to allow for that improvisational nature and what's interesting about the way it's um not scripted is it doesn't 
really feel that way when you watch it the first time. You can tell how it is when you know, but I don't know how you felt watching it the first time, but it did not feel unscripted in the way that an improvisational comedy or anything does. It just felt very real. What was your take on that? Yeah, um, you don't get the sense that, you know, uh, people aren't, you know, these actors are not um, trying to fill space. You know, this this is a very organic, um, uh, organic eruption of, of everything their characters have been feeling throughout the film. Um, it's really incredible how, you know, I, I feel like, so, okay, you, you, you use improv comedy as an example. I feel like, and, and I think we're, we're getting a little better these days, but for a, a while, a good 10, 15 years, the default mode in mainstream comedy was, well, let's just shoot every possible version of this joke or every possible interaction here. And you can tell. You, you can you can tell when things are stitched together, you know, even if it's great improv in the moment, that doesn't always translate to a, a smooth finished product. And so even in movies that I really enjoyed, like a lot of the, the Judd Apatow films, you can clearly tell like they, they have Frankenstein like a million different takes of the same scene together. Um, clearly this all being one shot you don't get that here and you don't get the sense that they're leaving anything on the table the 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 non-existent kitchen table that he wouldn't let be in the scene um this yeah this is everything they had and it so beautifully sums up what the film is that it is really astonishing to find out that all they had to go on was uh, just in the script, there was the intention of what the scene should be. It, it's, it's, it, it's, 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 you know, when we, when we use the phrase movie magic, I don't know. I think we're, we're, we're often talking about these big, incredible blockbuster uh, movies like, like Spielberg or, or whatever. But th- this, this is its very own particular kind of, of movie magic. It's, it's an incredible scene and that you, you literally couldn't repeat it. Yeah, it's 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 really stunning and it and it it's um it actually works in a way that you might not notice it's all one take while you were watching it because again it's not yeah. calling attention to it and it it uses um it uses blocking which again given that it's improvisational it isn't really blocking in the way that I I should probably say that it's blocking I don't know how they rehearsed it but but you there's a sense of the characters moving around in the scene but not a sense of the camera moving around. And so because of that, you get a pan and someone talking and then a pan and someone talking. And we're so used to the movie language of edits that watching this, it would be, it's very easy. And I found myself doing this because it's a 10 minute scene. I found myself forgetting that I was watching a single scene and your mind treats them almost as edits at some point, which I think actually goes back to the movie magic thing of you are creating a traditional movie scene out of the scene while absorbing subconsciously the impact of it not being a traditional movie scene. And that's like, it's almost an inversion of the like, oh, it can trick you with all of these things. It's just, it feels so, so in the moment and real that you process 
each of those blockings and those moments as distinct setups in the way that you would editing. And I, I find that fascinating, the way our brain has learned to interpret cinematic language that way. Yeah, it was one of those that when the scene was over, I had to stop and think, I was like, wait, was was that just one shot? Like, like you know, I, I my brain didn't consciously like there. I, I there was like a tickle in the back of my brain that, that there was something special about the way this was being filmed, but I, I, I was second guessing myself. I had to like, you know, uh, rewind or whatever the the current <laughs> term is. I, I had to go back and, and check. Yeah, it's 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 really incredible how our mind fills in the gaps like that. When you pitched this scene to me, I actually think you said, I'm pretty sure it's one take. I don't even think you, you like, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So there, there's something interesting about the, the, um, the style of this too, that, that reads, and I mean this well, because you can say this in film and mean it not well, but I mean it well, that, that has a theatrical, and I mean that in actual theater terms, not in a like right. drama thing. Like it feels right like a big moment in stage and i and i'm i've been thinking about that and it works it's it's a really good effect but this is in the ucla which i think was the film theater department like they had one department of it and like casey um Moore was an mfa student at ucla at this point so was probably doing theater and so these performances in film feel like they understand theater in a way that a lot of films that either lean too far into theater or don't really understand it at all when they're like trying to do it anyways there's something really interestingly theatrical about the staging and the way these actors approach the moment that i found really interesting i don't know how much theater you've seen i was in indie theater for a chunk of my life so maybe that's why i'm processing it that way but i'm curious if 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 that makes any sense to you or if you even like i don't know man i don't want to watch a lot of theater (laughs) <laughs> so I uh, I have some experience with theater. Uh, I was my, my, through, during my high school career. Uh, I was the, my my high school only held one play. After after my freshman year, the drama department was scuttled, uh, and I was the lead in that play, um, which is an experience that I really cherished and I really loved. And you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't call myself an expert. You know in the theater, but I, I completely understand um, what you're saying. There's a tendency, you know, especially when a film is, you know, based on a stage play, even, even the really good ones, a lot of times you can, you, you feel the staginess of it. Like uh, just a random example, um, Tommy Lee Jones and Samuel L. Jackson starred in this movie about 10 years ago called the sunset limited. Uh, it was directed by Tommy Lee Jones as well great great movie i did not know it was based on a cormac mccarthy play beforehand but like 20 minutes in i'm like pretty sure this was based on a play like you can (laughs) you 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 can just tell there's something theater and film are two completely different mediums and so i think when you get actors like this like like hardman and Moore, who understand um how to apply the um, the tenets of, of theatrical acting to film, you get something that is is perfectly cinematic, but uh, imbued with with the best of what that really um, intense um, kind of interpersonal uh, 
banter is the wrong word, but you know, when two actors are playing off of one another, um, they, they capture that perfectly. Honestly. So uh, I think a really good reference point for this and it's, uh, you might laugh at this, Eric, or people who know me might find this laughable because I always bring everything back to Ingmar Bergman. But, I mean, I, th- I think there is something to this comparison because uh, Bergman was a director who very consciously straddled the line between film and theater. If you've, if you've only seen his films, which, you know, anyone alive today has only seen his films – um, you're, you're missing a great deal of of his career, and often in his films he would incorporate elements of theater. And this uh, this scene in Bless Their Little Hearts reminds me a lot of uh, scenes from A Marriage, uh, which was very often two people in a room uh, just having it out, for for lack of a better term. Um, and I think this is very much in that mode um in a and i mean that in the most positive sense it uh transplants something about what we typically think of as like european art house film to a very very american very working class uh milieu and i i i love that about this movie I that I mean and, and you know Woodbury was very influenced. He's caught out the Italian neorealist movement, but I, I would be shocked if he didn't also love Bergman movies because it's kind of hard not to at least find some some lines of connection and kinship there. Right. Um, and that and and that theater background I think works for like that theater mode works for a scene like this. I've been thinking about the way this scene is played improvisationally, and one of the things that theater actors are phenomenal at if you've been trained in theater film actors if you haven't done that are less good at is if the scene is if you're not sure where the scene is going if you're off the rails someone forgets a line you keep the scene going there is no stopping on stage you cannot cut you cannot call for a line you can't do anything if things start going wrong the great theater actors will find a way to keep the energy moving until the scene can find its feet again. And in a scene like this where there are lulls in the conversation while you can feel the gears shifting in the description of things, um, uh, Moore is great at um, moments where she repeats, I- I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired, over and over again. And and at some point, Charles will come in, you know, and, and communicate with her at that point. But... That kind of of being able to play off each other, you know, in a way that, again, isn't what we talked about with that comedy improv thing where you're just going to do the joke a million times, but you really are following yeah. someone else's energy. Because actually, I just think with a lot of the improv comedy you get in the last 10 or 15 years, it is a camera on your face while someone off camera does something and then you just like snap through stuff, you know, until you hit a joke yeah. that you like. This is not that. This is one person giving and the other person having to figure out what to do with it. And that's like stage training. That's what you get from that. And you cannot let it drop. Can't let it drop. And you can feel that energy in this scene of two actors who are both phenomenal. I don't know if I've said that yet, but both of these performers through the entire movie and the scene are extremely affecting actors. I, I'm, I'm very floored by the performances in this movie and these are two actors who are just giving back and forth through this entire piece and i think you get that at the minimum the training 
is there regardless of the intent of whether any kind of theatrical thoughts are anyone's head i think you know what's insane is that uh i don't know if he continued to work in theater or if he just he you know went on to you know live a working class life similar to the character that he plays but nate hardman never shot another film after this it's it it blows my mind and he's I mean, legitimately phenomenal in this movie. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying on like you know when you watch a lot of indie movies, you grade on a curve. Sometime in indie movies, you know, you find someone you're right. like, well, they were good for that role. Because honestly, when right. you're shooting an indie movie, that's the best you can do. A lot of time, you find someone who can embody right. the role, and they do it. Hardman is not good for the role in the way he's doing it. There's a nuance and quietness, and you really feel that in the scene. You know, which starts with him defensive and angry and then progresses to panicked and then finally at the end is like a level of sad resignation and understanding and he tracks that through line the entire scene and i am not knocking what more has to do here but because more is great as well and she but she kind of has to maintain an intensity for most of the thing because she's pushing him that's her role in that she's not doing anything wrong by doing that but her need is to push him and Hardman has to change in increments and then occasionally in big moments, depending on what's going on through the entirety of the scene. And it is killer work. I mean, just really affecting work that as I rewatched it, I kept finding nuance to what he was doing. Um, It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Casey Moore, who um, actually she she passed away just this past August um, at the age of 77. Um, She only has five credits on IMDb, but they span decades. And that's so fascinating to me that she she's been referred to as such a key figure in in the, the L.A. rebellion. And yet she only ever appeared in a small handful of films many of which um were have have been almost impossible to find um and that just you know i I certainly um in the two years since i first saw her performance in this film I, i i certainly have not forgotten it she she makes she and hardman both make such an impression um it's it's really it's it's really criminal that the the infrastructure did not exist for the two of them or or Woodbury or Charles Burnett to really have the kind of flourishing careers that they by all rights should have had. Um, it's it, it, these almost across the board all of these films and like they because they were they yeah, we said dissertation films and thesis films in a lot of ways never got the release they should have but then also these directors which goes back to who gets budgets and who does stuff did not get careers after this um and one thing i should call about more which is a movie i'm going to be hunting down after this by the way she one of her other movies in 1991 was a movie called daughters of the dust which there i learned a very shocking fact in learning about the la rebellion which is one of the la rebellion um filmmakers is named julie dash and her film, 1991, Daughters of the Dust, and I want to recall that out, 1991 mm-hmm. is the first film directed by an African-American woman that was distributed theatrically in the United States. 1991. Yep. Um, 
Tasting more was in that, but that's. Yep. I mean, that is. It, it's. I mean, it's it's horrible to be like this. Goes back to I guess just you know to being two white people who have lived who grew up in a bubble, but that's within my lifespan. You know, like that is. Yeah. Like well within my lifespan. I'm almost a teenager yeah. at that point in my life and it was the first African American woman to get it. That's the what the state of this industry was. It's just I mean it was it was flooring information that I knew it was bad, but you're like, "Oh, it was it was that bad." <laughs> it, it 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 was that bad. Um yeah, it's I remember when it, when I learned that fact, um I I, I similarly was shocked and yet i think speaking to um you know a a number of the the pieces that you and i read before we started recording um mentioned that the la rebellion though the films have been seldom seen for a lot of their existence um have have been sort of secretly influential um and i think i don't know about you but the well i'll ask you had you heard of daughters of the dust before this i hadn't i had not heard of a single one of the la rebellion movies i mean it's a little embarrassing i i'm this is a big learning for me but yeah i i don't think i had heard of any of these movies or filmmakers before this well i had not heard of daughters of the dust and i suspect the vast majority of people had not heard of daughters of the dust until six years ago when beyonce released her album lemonade uh the visual album that accompanied lemonade is significantly influenced by daughters of the dust um it takes significant visual aesthetic influence from that film Um, i had no idea i that's amazing yeah. yeah so the these films have left a a huge legacy despite the fact that they've been so inaccessible um for for decades and that that to me is is fascinating um and i would just encourage anyone listening um if you can find any of these films and we are lucky enough to you know for as much as the streaming economy or however you want to call it can be a depressing state of affairs we are lucky enough to live in a time where these films are more easily available than they ever have been daughters of the dust was i I believe even when uh lemonade came out i I think was almost impossible to find and I, i think they made it available on netflix sometime after that um but that's you know that's easily you you could go watch that right now from your living room um so it's just it's yeah if you are interested in these films it's never been easier to find them so i just really strongly encourage anyone to to do just that yeah it take advantage of this as you know if you have criterion collection this movie's on i'm going to be hunting down some other ones um, um so also, you- also i want to mention that um so there's another service a free service called canopy uh, with a K K A N O P Y, um, it's dependent. Its selection is dependent on you know it. Uh, you you sign up with a library card. It's dependent on if your local library has a, a relationship with Canopy, and it's dependent on location as well. So bless their little hearts is available in some locations uh, for free on Canopy. It was not available through through my library district, but I would definitely, if you uh, cannot afford 
uh, Criterion channel or another means of watching this movie, I, I definitely recommend uh, seeing if you can stream it on Canopy. They, I, I had not used Canopy before, and I didn't realize it was library-based. That's amazing, and I'm going to have to go sign up for yeah. that. I'm, um, I'm a huge advocate of both uh, Canopy and Hoopla, which is a very similar service that also includes um, music and books and comic books. Um, so, yeah, those are totally free through your local library. So if, I would definitely check to see if those are available to you. Awesome. That's wonderful. Um Okay, I want to I want to talk a little bit about um, the set of this movie, which is actually a house. Um, but but I want to make a quick preamble, which is that every time I do these movies, I write up in my notes, um, you know, all of the technical people involved in case I swing over to something. And this being a UCLA a dissertation film, um, there's there are almost none to be had, right? Like it's director. Editor, both Billy Woodbury. Writer, cinematographer, both Charles Burnett. There's music by two jazz musicians. Um, unfortunately, we don't get to talk about the music too much in this because there wasn't any in this scene. But the jazz, there's a lot of jazz pieces by Little Esther Phillips and Archie Shep. Um, but I say that because a, a major component of this scene is what you would consider in most movies a set. But it is actually a house um, in the near UCLA. And actually, it was... Um, it was – I wrote read this. It was the house of a friend of Billy Woodbury who went to UCLA. That friend stayed in the house some months beyond when she wanted to move out because she was concerned about continuity in case she needed to shoot there. So this is a real house and a real kitchen. I don't know what set design stuff they did. I, there are obviously some thoughtfulness going in because there's, there's cabinets open and stuff there. But I, I don't think this scene is separable from the impact – of that kitchen i and i'm curious for your like what your thoughts are on that did that make an impact on you as well yeah i mean the, the kitchen is often i would argue more so than than a living room or or a den or whatever you have in your house i would argue a kitchen is the the focal point of of a home of domestic life because so much you know so much happens there um and uh, I would say a number of scenes inside the house take place in the kitchen, um, whether it's um, there's a really great scene um, early on that speaks to their relationship uh, where because Andeas is the breadwinner, she has to, uh, you know, they're getting ready for church and the kids, you know, always give something to the collection plate. She has to like secretly give uh give charles the money to then give the kids so that he can maintain the appearance of you know being the man of the house and being the breadwinner um and that that's in the kitchen there are a lot of a lot of just uh scenes of just slice of life domestic living happening in that kitchen and so i think it's very important that it is the site of of, as we've said before, the, the really big centerpiece of the movie, it's where everything comes to a head because so much of of how they live their lives and how they interact with one another takes place in that room. It's and it's a it's this kitchen that the as it's there is extremely lived in. Um, and it's and it's like aesthetics. It's like I said, there's even cabinet drawers open 
which I think is great. Like it feels, it, it doesn't just feel like a set. It feels like something she's cooking when he comes in. So there's pots on the stove, but it, it feels like people are using it. And it feels like it actually, it feels like a kitchen used by people who do not have enough time to actually use the kitchen for anything more than what they need it for. And Deus doesn't have, I mean, a lot of the scene is about how she has no time for herself. There's a lot of discussion about how everything about what Charles is going through. It is not an ability to get jobs has left her with all the responsibility and nothing to satisfy herself as a result. And, and this kitchen is the kitchen of someone who has that life and sets can get left out at that level of detail. And again, I don't know what what thoughtfulness went into exactly how they were setting it up, but the impact is very powerful to sell what's going on. Yeah. And man, may we all have a, a, a good enough friend who puts their life on a hold for the sake of our continuity. Yeah, just like <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna live in this house for a couple more years, a couple more months. Um, Anyway, speaking of friends doing this, that is such a big part of the LA Rebellion overall. And and specifically, one of the things that's really distinct about the LA Rebellion, in my opinion, from a lot of other film movements. And this parallels, for instance, the New Hollywood movement, which is another film school brat movement. You know, it's a lot of people who went to like NYU and um, I'm, I'm trying to think of the other schools. But, you know, you got Scorsese and Coppola and all these people. What's different about the LA Rebellion, because the studio system, the studios, or even just like Hollywood studios overall, weren't supporting them. There's, it's not quite generational because they weren't. It's college generational, I should say. People who graduated, there were people who started early who became the mentors of the people in the next run of classes, who became the mentors in the next run of classes, and so there were learnings and understandings through the entire 70s and into the 80s. It wasn't just each class coming through and making movies. There's continuity between the people. And Burnett was an earlier run of people of, of the LA Rebellion at UCLA and is now supporting Billy Woodbury. And so it's it's really interesting, you know, like there's it isn't just influence, there is a community aspect to these movies that I find really distinct. I'm having a hard time thinking of another film movement that has that depth of community support and interaction within that UCL film community. Yeah, it's, excuse me, it's, it's, it's really amazing. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right to draw a comparison to the new Hollywood movement. And I'm actually glad that you mentioned that because uh, th- that's something that I wanted to touch on. So at the same time, the LA rebellion is happening you have the new Hollywood movement, which would go on to shape um, a great deal of not just the business of film, but of cinematic language, mainstream cinematic language for, you know, I, I would say that that influence has lasted up, up through today. Um, and it occurred to me in thinking about the, the types of films uh, that came out of the LA Rebellion and the types of films that came out of the new Hollywood movement, what is really other than a greater budget and you know certain you know thematic differences what really is the difference between something like bless their little hearts and something like raging bull they're both very much about the same thing they're about 
dispossessed masculinity. They're about it in different ways, and Scorsese's film is certainly more physical, but I, I think it's that in itself is is an illustrative point for me. The only reason I think one of them became a dominant cultural force is because people got to see it. You know, I mean, I mean, certainly you could argue, argue that Scorsese's film is more, you know, it, it is flashier and, and more accessible maybe to mainstream moviegoers. But imagine if, uh, you know, Woodbury mentions in that filmmaker magazine interview that they made sure that this before this went on the festival circuit, they made sure that Bless Their Little Hearts played theaters for a week to qualify for the Oscars. And they knew they knew even then that that was, you know, that was the longest of shots. But um that they wanted it to be eligible and imagine uh, uh, imagine if enough people had seen it or known about it that it could have gotten that attention um uh, imagine how differently the course or how different the course of film history could be yep and and you you rewind the clock what you know 10 years to the early part of scorsese's um career and you get stuff like boxcar bertha and alice doesn't live here anymore and you know, formally and technically, they are not movies that look, you know, massively budgeted compared to them. You know what I mean? Like Scorsese yeah. has become known for his, uh, you know, again, I love his his audacious camera stuff when he wants to go for it. He's a master at it. But, you know, earlier in his career, that was a little more difficult. And so he was working under a lot of the a lot of constraints of his own. But you know, the path was there. And so we did get Raging Bull. We did get Goodfellas. You know, we got movies where the ability to, let's get a steady camera. Let's walk through a giant um, Copacabana set and and see what's happening. You know, that's not, that isn't an option. I actually don't think people realize if you haven't made independent movie, just how much that is not an option under independent mm-hmm. cinema. Like the ability to get 70 people into a room is harder than you can imagine it's harder than maybe anything else in in cinema like you want to get what a budget buys you it buys you 70 people in a room and keeping them there for five days while you shoot a movie the moving the camera around the performances the writing all of that stuff you can hand wave yourself past in a lot of ways 70 people in a room for a week you cannot never doing it without a massive amount <laughs> right. of money. And so, you know, but like, I, I totally agree that, you know, the, a lot of these filmmakers of the new Hollywood movement, you know, te- like earlier on, they, they got releases, they got um, budgets, they got um, the ability to hone their craft with a lot of other technical people who had already honed their craft, which also matters. You know, again, we go back to this, it's Burnett and Woodbury who are obviously extremely astute masters of film craft but you don't have um a long time editing partner you don't have a long time cinematographer partner you don't have these people who are like that is my craft and i'm going to bring it it's hard to describe just how many ways that adds up when you don't yeah. have those types of things um yeah um there's uh, again i keep going back to that filmmaker magazine interview because there's just so much in there uh, but Woodbury mentions uh, they had a teacher at UCLA named Richard Hawkins um, who knew that. So, you know, understandably, most students are just making short films because that's much more achievable. Um, uh, Woodbury had this reputation of like, well, well, he wants to make 
a long movie. And so, so Richard Hawkins would say, don't let him get involved or your film will end up being three hours long. Um, and uh, then to, uh, quoting Woodbury, uh, the other thing was people would say later, oh, I'll make a feature. He'd say, in fact, it's not accurate. You're just making a longer film. Because no one is going to the theater to pay their money to see your one film. It's not a feature. It's probably a C movie, and you'll play you'll play two of them for one price. So you know, it's the the, the fact that that Woodbury could even make a a quote unquote feature film, and and have it seen by anyone is is a huge achievement. It, it it's it's really. You know, as someone who grew up in the 90s and saw a lot of cheap independent cinema, um, you know, it was the era of Clerks and things like that. I, I, and anyone who did that, that is your impression of independent cinema. I think going back and watching, honestly, like if you can just hunt down this scene, although you should watch the whole movie, but like if you just hunted down the scene and watched it, it is the nuance of the craft on display is is actually hard to articulate without you watching it because in a movie this cut to the bone on budget this cut to the bone on crew this is not a movie that feels um quote unquote low budget it is not a movie that feels that way and the areas that it is spare really do harken back to the the neorealist movement where the intent is to capture reality, which is exactly what's happening in this scene. It is an intent to, to feel out a real argument. So the areas that feel spare feel narratively driven, um, which a lot of indie filmmakers in the 90s who wanted to do like crime movies and stuff never really figured out. And so yeah. it's there's something going on in this that that's – I mean I, I'm really glad they're getting releases now, but I – we just we deserve a very big push of of like film festival like go watch these movies in a chunk because it's it's kind of a crime that we're sitting here saying like yeah this movie has 1200 reviews on letterboxd you know like that's yeah upsetting i think when i when i was telling you about this movie for the first time i i think I said this because this is kind of my my pitch to a lot of people when I mention this movie is I'm convinced that if this um, if this had come out 10 years later or if it had if this was not uh, an independent film from the early 80s made by black filmmakers. I think it would be an acknowledged classic. I think this is the kind of movie you'd find on on lists. I, I think this would be part of of some sort of canon. And it's yeah, I'll, I'll I'll agree with you. It's criminal that this and other films like it are often excluded from from those lists. I, I'm. It's been a real pleasure talking about this, and I want to make sure I have not missed anything you wanted to talk about related to the scene. And is there something? Is there any anything about this that we did not get to dig into that you wanted to dig into? Um, I don't think so. I think, um, I think we've, uh, we've kind of covered everything and I just, I'm, I'm just really happy. Like personally, I'm just really happy that I get to, to basically evangelize about this movie and to let people know it's out there and that it exists and that it is, uh, it's something that they should hunt down. 
Well, well, thank you for choosing it. You've you've evangelized successfully to me, and it was it's very appreciated. Um, so, uh, why don't you tell the listeners um, where where they can find you, Arlo? Where should they hunt you down to thank you? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, really quickly before I do that, I did just look it up. And Killer of Sheep, which I'm which we've mentioned earlier, is available in some areas on Canopy. So. Oh, great. So I'm definitely going to be checking to see if, if it's available in my area. Um, so as for where you can find me, um, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, though I have a much lower profile these days. I, I nuked my original account from Orbit. Uh, so you can find me on Twitter uh, at uh, – it, I, I give it out so rarely now I have to double check. Yes, it's, it's at Arlo again. Uh, so you can find me there. Um, I, uh, I co-host the long running, more or less weekly pop culture podcast, Gobbledygeek with, uh, our good friend, Paul Smith. Uh, you can find that at gobbledygeekpodcast.com. Uh, we're available on Spotify, Apple podcasts, pretty much any, uh, podcatcher that you use. Uh, you can find us there. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much uh, where I am these days. Um, yeah, our our, uh, our podcast uh, does. Uh, Eric has been on many times, so if you're a rabid fan of making the scene, you can find him. Uh, you can find them on there. Um, and we, I would say, if you've enjoyed this conversation, we do talk a lot about movies. On Gobbledygeek, we don't often talk about this kind of movie. Um, we often, you know, gobbledy geek. We talk about the a lot of the nerd culture movies, and so I'm very happy. Again, I want to thank you, Eric. Um, I'm I'm really glad to have the uh, a venue to discuss this kind of film. I'm I'm it's I love talking about the big popular things. They're cultural moments. I also love getting to dig in to stuff like this. So it's great, absolutely great to have you here. Yeah, it, it, it literally anytime. Um, I, I fully plan on every time you announce a new season of making the scene, uh, even if it's another what seven or eight years, so how, however long it was, I, I, I'll be there. I will be annoyingly uh, pushing for you to 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 add me to an episode. Uh, welcome. It's absolutely welcome. Um, so thank you so much. This has been another great episode. I really appreciate this. Uh, Bless Their Little Hearts is a fantastic movie. You should absolutely go see it. Um, so enjoy, and I will see you all again next time for another episode of Making the Scene. Some nature.